Welcome to another episode of the On The Way podcast, a podcast exploring a non-violent, non-dualistic, compassionate faith life. My name is Dom Faye. You can probably tell from the very beginning of the episode that for the second time in On The Way history, uh, it sounds a little bit different than it normally might. The acoustics, the audio is a bit different. You might hear some noises in the background. That's because On The Way has gone on the road. Uh, I think this was the very first time that uh, earlier this afternoon, Sue, Peter and myself all hopped in a car and we've done the drive uh, to Toowoomba, which for those listeners not in the area we are in of the world in Brisbane, it's about an hour and a half from where we normally record, an hour and a half inland from Brisbane up in the mountains. I am sitting here at St. James Anglican Church in Toowoomba where I am joined by Sue. Sue, thank you for, for clearing the day for the drive. Nice to be in Toowoomba. And uh, Peter, thank you for doing the driving today, I have to say. Uh, you've been driven by me, now I've been driven by you. <laughs> I, think, uh, I think I felt safer than you might have when I was driving. <laughs> uh, it's good to be here, Dom, and you're a very safe pair of hands all the time. <laughs> well, look, uh, we are here with a, a Toowoomba guest, I suppose it's fair to say, uh, and a friend of, of the podcast as well. Deb Bird joins us as well. Deb, thank you for making time. Just for a bit of background on you, yourself, you, you have popped into a, a Zoom conversation we have had about the death of Christendom, which some might have seen on our Facebook page. For those who haven't seen that, who've just heard the podcast, can you talk a little bit about uh, who you are, what you do? So I, I'm an assistant priest here in the parish of St James and I take care of some of the people out in Highfields, a, a little, I guess you could call satellite suburb to the north of Toowoomba. Um, I guess I've been following the podcast since you began um, and conversation is one of my favourite ways of, of faith formation. It's um, certainly one of the things I enjoy doing most with my people. But I have to say thank you also to all of you to make the, the trip up to here as well. So you're kind of our guests as well and we're very pleased to have you among us. It's lovely to be here and uh, we are here in the midst of probably Toowoomba's most famous time of year, it's fair to say, the Carnival of Flowers where the, the town here does come alive with a number of different uh, colours in, in the various parks around Toowoomba. Interestingly though, we are also here on September 25th which is the Global Day of Climate Action, that is the day we are recording the evening of September 25th. And uh, the whole idea of this conversation is to explore creation, the awe, the wonder, the mystery, the abuse at times, and the urgency of action needed uh, when we talk about creation. And we're having this conversation in the month of September, as I did mention, that does fall in the season of creation. That was the genesis of this podcast. So we thought, well, let's have a conversation about the season of creation. Uh, and, and what better place to do it than to go to Toowoomba, to come here to St. James, at the Carnival of Flowers, and find a time to do it. Just to set the conversation uh, today up, Peter, I might ask you to give some background. I certainly wasn't aware of the season of creation. It wasn't something I had heard of before. Uh, many who are listening to this might well know of the season of creation, but for those who don't, what's the background of this idea, uh, the season of creation? Uh, your season of creation is something that's uh, finally getting a bit of traction in the life of the church. It's a gift to us from our Orthodox uh, sisters and brothers. Uh, in 1989, the uh, ecumenical patriarch, Demetrios at the time, uh, asked the Orthodox community to spend the 1st of September as a day of prayer for the creation. Uh, the Orthodox have a much better theology of creation than we do in the West, I think. Um, and they've always celebrated the 1st of September as the day that creation happened. So it's actually got an anniversary. Um, I think Monty Python got it wrong. I think they thought it was sometime in October. But um, <laughs> the 1st of September is Creation Day and Demetrios in 1989 became really quite concerned at the decline of the planet and he called the Orthodox community to prayer. And then the World Council of Churches got hold of it and um, through the influence of an Australian theologian called Norm Habel, um, it, it got some uh, liturgical Western traction and certainly in the last uh, five years it's really become something that many churches have started to observe. So it's moved from being some sort of esoteric sideline 
to something that is um, observed by many, many churches. And uh, I suppose it's a very apt time, certainly for us in the Southern Hemisphere. We are in spring, which is probably a, a time people are quite attuned to creation, to, to nature, to what's going on around us. Mm. Um, and, and we probably couldn't pick a more appropriate place to explore both the beauty but also the brunt of creation, to explore all facets of our relationship with uh, nature around us because Toowoomba, for a little more context, not only has this annual flower festival, um, which is, is stunning in, in many ways and something that many people come here to see, but we are also in a place that knows drought very well, better than many places on the planet, knows what it is like to have to worry about will we have water, will we have enough water and not just take water as a privilege to take it for granted. But it is also a place here, Toowoomba, where we're sitting right now is, oh, I think, about 20, 30 minutes away from a place that was at the forefront of the 2019 Australian bushfire disaster. Um, and people who listen to this all around the world will probably remember seeing the images of the summer fires that, that did hit Australia. They did start in, in spring, though. But the, the fires that did ravage Australia in late 2019, early into 2020. And where we are right now, we are near the Ravensbourne region, which I believe was one of the first uh, disaster areas in the country. One of the early starts, uh, I guess one of the early markers of this fire disaster nationwide. Uh, so I might start there because, because that does encapsulate the conversation we're going to have today. Um, that this place is at once this expression of beauty and colour and vibrancy, but then at the same time um, a place that holds the, the concern of what's coming, and not even what's coming, but what already is. Um, this is not just a far-off threat. We are living through it already. I, I might ask you, Deb, as someone who is, was in the region when this was happening um, you know, last year in 2019, what... What are your memories? What was it like, um, you know, when, when the fires did start to ravage through the Ravensbourne region and, and the surrounds? Actually, my first um, very distinct memory was um, realising just how heavy a psychological effect it was having on the people of the area to, to live in proximity to fire and live in proximity to where we are at Highfields, the, the road that runs through there, all the fire trucks were going through there mm. and the helicopters and the planes with the, you know, the, the water were going overhead. And we had this constant stream all day long for weeks um, of traffic um, going out to address the fire. Um, and the first Saturday after all that happened, I walked into the church to start preparing for the service the next day and there was people there waiting for me to say, we're so glad you're here, we need to talk about this, we're really worried. Um, so, I, so while I was constantly aware of all this going on, I, I really had to stop and think about the effect, even though we weren't seeing the fire in Toowoomba or in Highfields, while well, it was still another 20 minute drive past Highfields, the, 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 the very fact that, that we had the activity of addressing it around us all the time and the colour of the sky was starting to change. Mm. It was grey if you looked in one direction, but it was bright orange all day long if you looked in the other direction. So the air quality was, you know, you'd get up in the morning and, and I tasted ash in my mouth for weeks. You know, and that wasn't even when it was on my doorstep, um, you know. Um, we had some people in our congregation who were living in communities outside of Highfields and, and sometimes, you know, there would be messages saying, you know, I can see it on the ridge behind my house or, you know, the neighbours got evacuated or things like that. But the psychological stuff um, happened without even need, needing to see the flames and um, the conversations of fear... Um, became quite prominent and the public discussion about climate change started becoming a little bit easier in Toowoomba in yeah, a place right. that hasn't been very easy to talk about it in. I, I suppose the, there is this sense, I mean, coming from a Brisbane perspective, um, w I did not see the orange glow, I did not see the fires with my own eyes but I, I can vividly remember the, the days and days and weeks and weeks where the, you, everywhere you looked, the air visibility was, was, you know, normally I can see probably 30, 40 kilometres from my house and you'd struggle to see five, 10 kilometres. I remember walking through the city one Friday night in late November, early December, 
uh, I was with my girlfriend and my family and we were going to go for dinner and we actually had to turn around and go back to the car because we couldn't walk through the city. It was too hard to breathe and too hard to, to actually be out in this. And I, I know there was a lot of talk throughout this summer of fires that we had over 2019, 2020, of maybe summer is never going to be the same in Australia. Is, is this what's happening? Is this going to be the new norm we're going to have to get used to now? You know, has something ended and is something new now, now here? And I suppose that's why the, the urgency of season of creation, uh, you know, it, maybe year on year it becomes less of a, well, it's a good idea to remember this stuff and more of a, um, you know, maybe it becomes, it becomes less about doing a GP checkup and more about calling the paramedics. It's a little more urgent now, Peter. Is that how it feels to you when you, you know, you said you've been doing it for a few years now, but, but this year coming out of what happened last year with the fires, is this year, did, did it feel different approaching season of creation to you? It, well, it did in, 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 in um, sort of a mixed sort of way. One, one was there's an increased sense of urgency but there's also, I think, and this is the encouraging bit, there's a, a sense of uh, mainstreaming of the need to do something. And so the season of creation, um, I think I started doing it in the late 90s, I think, in Grafton. And we were seen as sort of, we, we were probably the only parish that in the diocese that did it and we were seen as an esoteric fairly cute thing and um, its radical edge has grown and has become more mainstream. So now every year the Archbishop almost as a matter of course sends out a reminder in an ad clarum that the season of creation is happening, here are the resources, uh, we need to be looking after the planet um, this is something to attend to. And mm. the encouraging thing is that the church is now incorporating this as just part of its life and the invitations that come out of it are being seen. We're able to now do the depth work. Before it was seen as a bit of a radical edge and radical edges are challenging but they're not always an invitation to the depth work and the depth work I can see is beginning to happen in the life of the church. And so it is different, um, and it's different in a beautiful way. So I'm, I'm actually encouraged mm. by what I see, even though the urgency lurks there, um, saying you don't have time to muck around. Yeah, well, and I remember early on, a few years ago, when we started having discussions around this podcast, and you know, it became pretty clear that if we're going to do a podcast responding to the world around us and the spiritual needs of the world today and where people are at and where our communities are at, that climate is going to be a theme. It's, it's going to be an inescapable theme anywhere in the world, but maybe especially um, in our part of the world in Australia where things are, are evident quite immediately um, at the moment. I, I suppose, as you said, Peter, the encouraging thing is back then I remember having a conversation over lunch where we were saying that for many people the link between being a person of faith and caring about the climate wasn't quite there yet. People mm. thought they were separated issues mm. and it feels like that still is true for many but, but true for fewer than it was three years ago. Mm. Um, do you still, Sue, do you still experience, I guess, that disconnect when you bring... And I know that you have you have met with a bunch of groups who have protested against climate, you, you have relationships in those areas. Do you still find when you try to talk sometimes about climate in a faith perspective that you still are getting the response commonly of, but, but how is this linked? How is this... That's a different conversation what we're having. I, I think that's one thing that in the church we have done is tend to think of things in separate disciplines or separate areas. Um, and so... You know, we, here we have someone who is working or who is uh, um, advocating in certain areas and, and people in the church will say they, they're a social justice advocate, as if that's something that just someone does. <laughs> um, and yet when you talk with environmental groups, suddenly I, I, I had this weird experience once where I was having um, conversations about life and spirituality more with these environmental groups than I was having in morning tea after church sometimes because to them the, the advocacy for the planet 
was actually not about social justice, it was about life and our interconnection with all things. And so I'd have these wonderful conversations about life and meaning and how we are all connected and there is something here, isn't there, that's bigger than all of us. And, and then I'd come to church afterwards and, and we would see it in separate disciplines. And so I guess that's one of the challenges and I do feel we are starting to overcome it as people are recognising um, their sense of, um, as they have experienced God in their life, it's being, you know, you actually start to put words on it that are bigger than any discipline could ever be. Hmm. I, I, I suppose it's interesting. I remember having a conversation with a friend maybe a year or two ago now um, about how we were doing a, a climate episode. This is when Mick Pope was... Michael Pope, was it? Is that the name? I've forgotten, I guess. Yeah, Michael yes. Pope? Yes, that yeah. is who he is. Yeah. I didn't want to offend him and get his name wrong there. But I remember he was in town and we were talking to him about, about climate because that's a core concern for him. And my friend said, I love the podcast, but I don't know if I'll be able to listen to that one. And I said, why is that? And they said, every time climate comes up, you know, in a conversation, it is too overwhelming for me. I don't know what to do because, you know, all I feel that comes from it is that I feel guilty that I don't recycle enough. Maybe you're guilty that I've booked a flight. I mean, not that that's a big problem in 2020, but guilty that I booked a flight to go somewhere and, and guilty that I still drive my car. And, and I feel a sense of personal guilt combined with an overwhelming sense that this isn't just a fringe problem but the, the way we got here is systemically baked into the way we organise ourselves together. And my friend said to me, I can't listen to these conversations now because I feel just guilt and overwhelmed and I feel like I shut down. Mm. And there's no way for me to really understand what another spiritual response can be. You know, the, the easiest response is just put it out of mind and, mm. you know, and deal with that when we get to it and hopefully we'll get a good political leader one day who'll make some change and then I can celebrate it with everyone else. But it's, it's above my pay grade, so why, why move myself into that space? What, what would your response be? If people are listening to this thinking, oh, climate again, yeah, but, but there's nothing, it feels there's nothing we can do except feel overwhelmed and hopeless, what would you say to them? I'd say, first of all, that the first move is lament. And that's what the church is very good at. And we should be, you know, that the, if all through the Psalms, there's this keynote of lament in so many of the Psalms. And it's something you have to do first, I think. Uh, before, it, the, the lament is about saying something is wrong here. There is inherently something wrong. I, it might be, part of lament might be, I don't know what to do about it. I don't know how I can approach this. Um, but something is wrong in the systems that we're operating in and, and um, in some of the tragedies that I'm seeing, uh, you know, grieving the loss of species. Mm -hmm. uh, so we have to spend some time to actually look at that and experience that and lament that. Even when we feel, might feel overwhelmed, I think lament is a more constructive channel. Only when we have spent time in lament, I think, that we find together a way forward. And lament is also not about finger-pointing or blaming or feeling guilty. Lament is, is experiencing it all together. And um, until we can do that together, then we can move somewhere else together. Mm. I also think um, one of the gifts of the church is the way we've been taught how to pray. And, you know... Even when I was doing, I, 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 was, I was confirmed at the age of 24 with a bunch of 14-year-old schoolgirls from a private school. <laughs> and we were all taught how to pray. And I got marked, I actually passed the <laughs> test. Um, but we were taught, and I think it's good teaching, that, the, that you begin with a sense of thanksgiving. And so I agree absolutely, totally with Sue, but I think we can also do a number of things at once. And I think the gift of the season of creation is that it invites us to appreciate the gift, to say thank you. And then I think there's sort of a, a double act going on between lament and thanksgiving where we say, oh, this is a gift. Oh, look what we've done to it. It's beautiful. Look what we've done to it. I'm sorry I've done this. It's a gift. I'm going to appreciate it. And we end up in a bit of a dynamic dance, which is the best way to do theology, is to dance, 
where we are finding hope because we are appreciating something and wanting to do something about it. So we're not, we're not um, as, as Sue said, lament is not just about feeling miserable and bashing yourself up and it's particularly not about bashing yourself up. It's about beginning to understand yourself afresh, having things stripped away that need to be stripped away so that we understand who we are and out of that sense of thankfulness and lament sort of dancing together we actually discover a way out of the mess. But if we if we don't do lament, we do the sort of false hope thing, where it'll, mm. you know. And there's Christian theology, particularly in the West, is really good at that. Oh, it'll be all right. God's got it under control. We don't have to do anything. God wouldn't let that happen. Um, the rainbow tells us it's not going to happen again. All that sort of false hope theology that sort of papers over the cracks and says, "Don't be sad. Don't. You know, there's nothing nothing to see here." Um, the, you know, the powers and the principalities invite us to think that it's all going to be sweet. Um, and so we, we find a path through it by entering into this dance of lament and thanksgiving. And out of it comes, as always, because this is our narrative, the gift of hope and resurrection. And you know, often in the podcast we talk about negotiating Holy Saturday and living into it. I think in terms of the climate where somewhere in that space at the moment. But I, I actually get, I've got a sense that Easter dawn's just sort of... Mm. Well, uh, you know, and I suppose if we look at that prayer model you mentioned, because the aim of this conversation isn't to go through the top ten facts about climate change and then wrap up and leave everyone with an eerie sense of, oh, that's right, I'd forgotten and how, I'd put out of my mind how bad that is. Uh, ultimately... You know, you can talk about things such as cutting down your own emissions and recycling and all that, and, and those, are, those are very valid conversations, but that's not really what we're here to talk about today. It's kind of on a, a deeper, more spiritual level about how we actually relate to the planet, to creation around us. Um, and I know, uh, Peter, you, I asked you, just before we, we pulled into St James here, I asked you, what do you see this conversation as being? And you said it's about, to you, overcoming the binary of nature. Yep. Can you explain what you mean by the binary of nature? Sure. Um, and this is where the orthodox come to our rescue, I think. In, in the West, as Sue said before, we tend to deal with things in silos or packages. And, and it's partly our scientific heritage. We like to... Uh, uh, define things. We've got wonderful way of defining you know, taxonomy and stuff like that where we can understand how things are. But when we do that we tend to put them into boxes. And one of the biggest boxes that we have created is the idea of nature. So nature is something that is not me. So I go, I go out into nature. Nature is not my domesticated animals because we've taken the wild things and we've made them safe, we've domesticated them. We've done the same to plants. So there is a sort of a shadow side to the Toowoomba Festival of Flowers, which I'm prepared to explore even in Toowoomba. <laughs> <coughs> you might get chased out of town. But, <laughs> but, but we have turned nature into something that is there and different to us. So we're not part of nature, which means it's a thing, it's another. And therefore it is something that we do things to without being affected. Mm. So we mine it, we chop trees down, and then we go home to our safe places, away from the nature, um, having bought stuff out of it that we want to do with what we will. The challenge that comes from orthodoxy and from the season of creation is to see ourselves as in relationship with all that is. And in our tradition, the Western tradition, that's best represented by St Francis who, and St Clair, both of whom are having a bit of a flourishing time at the moment because they actually are the saints who talk to us about what we can do and how we relate. 
So you know, Francis talks about the birds and the animals as his sisters and his brothers. And so you, know, you start thinking, doing your theology in terms of if someone was to walk into my house, and we can talk about the Greek word for house and economy and all that sort of stuff as well. If someone was to walk into my house and molest my sister, I would defend her. If I see the birds as my sisters and someone starts to molest them, then I will defend them. They are no longer other, they're actually kin, they're family, they're related to me. If a member of my family is hurt or damaged or destroyed or killed, then I am devastated, injured. I carry that wound for the rest of my life. If we see the other creatures through that lens, then every time a tree bleeds, I bleed too. And we've turned to a very different understanding of who we are. It's no longer the other, but us. And the Orthodox talk about oikos, house, which is where economy, ecology and ecumenism all come from. And the idea that we all live in the one house. And that brings us back to that idea of the blue planet and the you know, interrelated biosphere and all of that sort of stuff. And when we start uh, exploring that as an issue, we actually have skin in the game. And I think that's one of the things that was awoken for people during the bushfires, is it wasn't just the bush on fire, our lives were on fire. We were affected by it. Like in Brisbane, as Dom said, we were a gazillion kilometres away from the closest fires. There were fires on the, on the Gold Coast and the Sunshine Coast and up here, but in the city we were pretty well you know, safe as houses. <coughs> But we were affected by it. We were traumatised by it. We carried the wounds of it. And it's developing that spirituality of connectedness that will actually get us through this disaster. It strikes me the role that individualism plays in this as well, the individual project, yeah. the myth of the, the individual myth, project. The myth, the lie. It's not a myth. It's, the myths are good. Yes. <laughs> Lies are bad. And the idea of the individual is a lie. And it's the orthodox who tell us that that is also a lie. They say mm. that a person is created by being in relationship. Mm. That you are not you other than your relationships. The idea of the individual is a lie. The idea of nature as being something separate from us is a lie. And one of the things that theology equips us to do, and our sensitivity, our own sensitivity, we all know what happens to us when we are with other creatures. When we allow ourselves to be that rather than the imagined project of the separate being, then we flourish. So we call out the lie of individualism and we call out the lie of nature. And I suppose that individual lie um, and perhaps the, the secular lie that it is random that you are here and you'll be here for a little bit, experience things just as yourself and then you're gone, not your concern, dust your hands and off you go, in a sense, is toxic when we're looking at the environment in this way. I heard a, you know, someone from the, the Buddhist tradition speaking a while ago and they just posed the question, if everybody just for a moment believed in reincarnation that you're coming back <laughs> if everyone believed you're coming back to this thing <laughs> would we all like very differently with the environment because you think oh crap well if i if i've got to have another few goes here <laughs> if i'm coming back to this thing if i don't get out at the end of my my natural life i'm in right now you know i might take care of it it's almost like if you're staying in a a hotel room, you know, and you're checking out in the morning, but then someone tells you, you know, you're living here for the next week. You're like, oh, I'll make the bed then. I'll, I'll make sure everything's as it should be. Because there is this this sense of a, of a responsibility now, kind of a selfish responsibility, but also a bigger responsibility of I'm not here just by chance and, um, you know, 
Because I think that individual sense that, well, what I'll do then is I'll accumulate enough money so I can buy a house in somewhere that won't flood or burn yeah. and I'll, I'll buy a good enough air conditioner so no matter what's happening outside, I can make me and my people safe. But actually, that's not... That doesn't work and the people who find themselves doing that can't escape the collective anxiety, panic, disaster. Um, it, it, when you think about this, do you think individualism... Deb, for example, do you, when you think about the individual project and the idea that that, well, at least I'm in my part of the world where things aren't too bad and in this part of suburbia we probably shouldn't get bushfires and I don't think we'll get a flood. So, you know, as long as the roof's on securely for any storms, we should be okay and we've got a good air conditioner. Do you think that that sense of, well, as long as I just look after me and mine, then all will be okay, is what's enabling things to continue as they are, you know, without, without any drastic overhaul yet? Yeah, I, I think... I think there's a little bit of lack in our lives, um, particularly in our recent generations, of learning what it is to be faithful to the place that we're in. Um, we live lives now that, that very much depend on us all being mobile. We, we travel some distances to jobs, actually, in fact, you know, some quite some dramatic distances on a daily basis, some of times to, to, to get wherever it was that we work, be it in the city or... Um, out in the you know rural areas or in places of education or manufacturing, we all have specialised areas to to go to for our work, and that steals us from being in a place on a daily basis long enough to see the behaviours of the day and all the life and um, that arises in the day, and and even to watch the seasons. You know, if we're um, not in our place for very long, but it also we have a um, culture of, of moving around a lot, you know. So even apart from the being away from our houses for long hours every day, we tend to move from place to place. So if we see that, if, if, if we, for instance, um, are not attentive to place, if we leave a bit of a mess behind us, we don't see what we're leaving for someone else to inherit afterwards. Are we leaving a place that's that in which things will grow, in which there is good life here? And I'm talking about both the land and I'm talking about a sense of... <coughs> connectedness in community um, as well or are we leaving a place that is going to be in a little bit of loss because no one has bothered to pay attention or make connection or notice that we're participating in something that is not just us in this place you know so I mean and that's just on an individual basis let alone on a communal scale um, you know we talked about food a, a, a few times you know we don't know um, what the right conditions in our own backyards are often to grow a tomato, let alone how to fill our plate and where the food that we source that comes from. Um, you know, so, you know, th this sense that, that we don't have a relationship with what we don't see, but the trouble is we don't even see the place that we live in is, is true these days, I think. Um, we, we don't know what it is to be, to feel as if we are of this earth that we stand on right here, let alone on the bigger scale of things. I think that picks up the relationship between attentiveness and relationship. Yep, yep. You know, attention. I used to have a wonderful Jesuit mentor um, and he said to me once, what would, what would happen? Where would you be if, say, God stopped paying attention to that stool you're sitting on? And I said, oh, I think I know where this is going, but, you know, I'll play along. Where would I be? He said, you know, you'd be on your bottom. <laughs> okay, on the floor. Fair enough. So in his idea, and, I, and this is something that is fairly strong in my own theology, that this is God is, is paying loving attention and holding everything in being at all times. That attention is actually part of the relationship. And our problem is that we have distanced ourselves from from where we are and haven't been paying attention to what's going on around us and i think too that the idea that at the heart of everything is relationship it's it's inescapable if we're trying to live life as a self-made man or self-made woman we are swimming against a tide we're not going to defeat you know mm -hmm. the whole world is rigged relationally every particle is relational and it, and it comes down, those, that relationship, um, we need to attend to it to actually understand what's going on. Um, if I can jump in there. Um, I think it's uh, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, that says, um, 
um, this lack of recognition of this relationship, the, the, this, this um, is a lack of recognition of our creaturely selves, that we are of this earth and inescapably of this earth, is, is a sin the size of the Tower of Babel. Um, you know, this trying to, to be apart from this thing of which we are, can only be a part. Um, and the recognition that, that what we do, that all that, that sin of separateness, all the, all the things that we don't see that we allow to happen, is doing something terrible to ourselves but also to our neighbours, that loss of sense not only with the earth but actually the inheritance of the people who come after us or mm. if we were to come back, you know, um, um, what we do to, to the earth and, and what we fail to see we're doing to the earth is a sin that we're committing against ourselves ultimately. It's mm. a good way of seeing it. The idea of separateness too. Like you know, our, our culture talks about throwing things away so where is a way? Mm. <laughs> yeah, where is it? As if it's somewhere else. So you know, we, we, we produce these incredibly dangerous chemicals and then we throw them away to this mythical place that is not going to affect us because we're here and a way is a way. Then it soaks into the groundwater and someone you know, gets PFAS poisoning. And suddenly we're surprised because we thought we'd thrown that away, separate, another place. Mm. It doesn't exist. I guess there's something really spiritual about that when, you know, we, we feel in our own lives that sense of, well, I'm going to let that, I'll just let that go, that anger I have or whatever. And actually then we find that realisation that, you know, there is no a way to throw it to. <laughs> we're, it, similarly, we've put it, you know, in a in a maybe in landfill, an emotional inner landfill, <laughs> but it's landfill that isn't stable mm. and it's probably going to come back 20 times as severe in some form or another. So, yeah, and that's a really interesting point, the separateness that you make there, Peter, that, that if, if we moved a, away from the thinking that all that is bad, not good, not what we want, can just be cast aside, mm. if we think, well, no, it's all here and there isn't anywhere else to go... <laughs> How would that change how we how we live, and how would that change? You know, if if the councils of the world announce tomorrow there'll be no more rubbish collection, we're not doing landfill anymore. Yeah. You know, well, that would terrify people because then suddenly you'd have to look at things and go, well, do, do I want to buy that pancake shaker? Makes it easy for me to pa make pancakes, for example. Yeah. But then for the rest of my years on this planet, I'm going to be left with this plastic pancake shaker. <laughs> so, to, to save myself a couple of minutes, right. maybe I should just make it in a reusable metal bowl. Yep. And so it's less of a, just a nice convenience, but it's actually kind of this, if we were to move away from thinking that there was a place we could cast all the stuff we don't like, mm. actually that might help us transform mm. both our inner and outer worlds. Yep, because we do it to people too. We think we can put people away, yeah. get rid of people. Where if we had to work out how to live with each other, again, separate, stop being separate but integrated, we'd live a very different life. It'd be a beautiful life. Mm. So how do we get there? What do we, what's the, and I suppose in a sense well, I know that's not a question that, if, if you've got a clear answer to that question, Peter, I'm going to be mad you haven't told me before yeah, now. Right. <laughs> because could have done with that a few years ago. Yeah. But, but because I, I know it is, it is almost the question we're asking through every episode of this podcast. People of yeah. faith communities and spiritual communities globally have been asking from the very dawn of time, you know, this, this sense of, of moving to a way of living that is more like that. Well, that way will emerge if we attend to relationships. So it goes back to what Sue and Deb were saying. It's, it's basically understanding that we are in relationship, relationships matter, relationships make us, we do have a relationship with the planet, um, the planet makes us, the planet inspires us, the planet gives us our spirituality. You know, there's a form of, of silence that you can only encounter in the wilderness. And if we start to understand ourselves in that frame, then the answer will emerge because there is no answer because it's hasn't, you know, it has to emerge. It's evolution. We have to attend, going back to what Sue said, you attend to it, 
let it gift you. Because again, see this idea of having an answer is about us wanting to be in control, wanting us to determine the outcome, wanting us to know, capture, control. Whereas a lot of this is about attend and it will reveal itself to you. Which is what we have to do, you know, it's why we meditate, you just have to attend without any expectation that you're going to have the fireworks or something beautiful happen, you just attend. You, make, you turn up and you attend and the presence makes itself known to us and the future will make itself known to us. Just like, you know, relationships, are like, you, you can't know at the beginning of a relationship what it's going to be like, but you attend and that's the beauty of being part of an evolutionary universe. New stuff happens that we didn't expect and couldn't anticipate. And we give ourselves to the journey. We're on the way. Hey, there's a good name for a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I think to the, um, the part of, of that attending, and we, we have been given, I mean, we've been given a strong scriptural tradition that shows us a way, not the clear, not clear cut answers, but does show us a way. Yeah. And one of that is just, Love your neighbour, you know, if we actually, and we can think of the earth as our neighbour, but it also means we think if we are really loving our neighbour, we will recognise there is no other, there is that, that whoever, um, however one person on the earth suffers, that we are doing it with them, that we are in some way sharing in that suffering. That's what loving your neighbour is about. And loving your enemies means that you are creating, you're disbanding that category of enemy. There is no other anywhere. It's a similar kind of philosophy as, as there being no way. You know, we are all of us here and there's so many parables and stories about saying there is enough. We don't need to compete. We don't need to compare. You are enough. You have enough together. But we only have enough together if we maintain those relationships abundance principle, which is what we've been gifted, is only working if we share and if we are loving one another and disbanding that category of enemy. I think there, there seems to be a number of different approaches to all of these questions of creation, of climate. If you take different cross-sections of society, you'll find some whose religious perspective is well, this Earth's just kind of the rough draft anyway. Um, so who cares what happens to it? Because we're all going somewhere great. You know, it's... Mars. <laughs> yeah. But, but, that, but this, idea, this idea that, well, let's just get through this thing. Because let's be honest, this is just small fry. The, the, main, the main game's still coming. So whatever happens here is kind of, you know, out of the picture. We can throw it away, to put it uh, in, in your language there, Peter, that you used. Um, uh, there's another approach, you know, culturally, which is just one of immense anger. Anger at, you know, when those stats come out that is it 100 companies responsible for 71% of global emissions since 1988, something along those lines. Anger at the, the greed, anger at the broken system that has led to things like that, and an anger which doesn't often lead to much more than just a lot of screaming. <laughs> And, um, and a lot of scapegoating, mm. you know. Well, it's, it is the fault of BP. And if we just cleared BP off this planet, then everything would be great, you know. Mm. So that's another approach. One is let the place burn because we're going somewhere great. The other is, well, I'm going to scream while it goes down. <laughs> um, it, does it feel then when we speak about these, this spiritual awakening to seeing our relationship with nature in a different way, it is... The, it is the, the road, the path, the avenue that globally it feels like people are, are crying out for. How do we actually find a way to address all of this stuff? How do we find a way to address all of this stuff and the depth and complexity it brings with it on so many fronts? Um, you know, it's, it's kind of not possible to address it with just a secular removed, well, the climate's the climate and we'll do it. Like, you, you have to move to a position of the whole thing being connected yeah. and the whole thing being one and you being a part of the whole thing yeah. to be able to hold it all as it moves together. Do, do you agree? Is that, is that too drastic a statement? Or do you think that that viewpoint, that way of seeing is actually necessary 
to to meet the moment. I think the um, I think the mystical tradition is usually the answer to everything, um, <laughs> and by that I don't I don't mean just Christian mysticism. I you know, I meet as Sue was talking a while ago about the people in the environmental movement that she spends time with, who have a sense because they're attending. They're attending to how they feel about stuff and their relationships. They are having a deep mystical experience, not that they would call it that, um, which is actually supporting them, encouraging them and transforming them and empowering them. And I think that's one of the gifts that the church, the church at its best, points people to relationships. And that's where the Orthodox again save us because in the West we have tended to think about it in terms of right thinking, getting your creed right, um, right belief. Whereas you know, Orthodoxy actually means right glory, it's all about relationship. And you know, the Orthodox get it and they say, you know, God turns up. We have to attend to it, not God will turn up if we have the right formulas. And so you know, at, you know, I, th I think the church has got incredible resources to be the powerhouse, along with other spiritual traditions, because we don't have to be um, exclusive about this, because that's just another way of creating binaries and wars mm. and fighting each other. Um, but honouring the mystical where it pops up. So, you know, finding in young people who've ne had no exposure to the church, their spirituality, if that gets affirmed and we give them the language, then you know, they're going to be blessed by the church's tradition, just as we're blessed by their stories. So you know, I, I just think that we need to be better in touch with our own tradition and what the gift of the church is. Um, we've got some amazing stuff for these times. I, I think the, the sacraments are yeah. key here because if we start <coughs> to think, and this is where I think we've, we've got to be aware, it's like a, a move that Peter's talking about between the East and the West in the way of thinking of the whole world as sacramental. Sometimes if we think what we're doing, say in the Eucharist, we hear we've got God, we have God, we break God, and then we go out and take God out in the world. That's sort of one model. What if we think about it's actually the whole world which is sacramental, the glory of God is in all things and then when we come and gather in the church we are here sort of focusing that glory of the sacrament that is the whole world in this moment of breaking and giving. So it's like the, it's a movement from the world in and then we go out but it is not that we have God and we're taking into a world where God is absent. It is, but the rite of the sacrament is actually can be such an empowering thing and a gift to the world when we get that order right and not think that we're hanging on to God here in this church building and then going out. Is it Brueggemann that talks about this as a bit of a theology of, of materiality, the realising that the, the givenness of the world, the very giftedness of what we have, that nothing can come to us except through through this world, a sacrament, and all the ways we engage and all the things that sustain us and all the ways we express our faith are all material things. They're all It's, it's, it's all sacraments, it's all sharing. But if I can go back a little bit to... Um, what we're saying about the gifts of the church before, one of my favourite ways of thinking about the church is, is a house of memory as well, a place that really knows how to honour memory. And I think part of the um, um, understanding the, the bigness of, of what is happening and, and not getting caught up in, in the despair of it all is learning to sit with the stories that have brought us here. And I think one of the beautiful things of the season of creation coming mainstream, as Peter has said, is that we've learnt to enfold um, our, or we're learning to enfold our, uh, our, our stewardship or our identity as um, laid out in the stories of our tradition in the world into a pattern of faith. To be a person of faith is to be faithful more than just to each other, more than just to literally our neighbours, but to all the um, those who will inherit life in this place, you know. Um, 
and, and breaking the, the church out of the story of just talking about people. I think is is the place that we're going now that I'm finding very hopeful. It's the story of the whole of creation um, that we are finding our identity in now. Yeah, that's right. Um, Early on in the season of creation time, uh, Norm Habel, the um, South Australian Lutheran theologian, wrote a thing called the Earth Bible. And it was looking at the stories of tradition through the lens of the earth rather than the lens of the human and uh, it's an amazingly refreshing way of reading the scriptures and so you change the subject literally yes we've touched on on this a little bit you know incidentally throughout the conversation but i'd love to hear from the three of you because obviously what we're maybe the core engine of this discussion is that the hope for the climate isn't you someone just logically deciding I'll recycle a bit more or drive a bit less. The hope for the climate is a reimagining of how you view this world and your relationship to it, your place alongside and in it, um, and, and removing that separation, that separation between us and nature. And I know you mentioned this earlier, Deb, the idea of not knowing when tomatoes, uh, you know, in season. I remember I used to work doing a late night radio show and every now and then I'd go to, there was a 24 hour supermarket nearby and the show would finish at one in the morning. And I think, well, I'll go pick some groceries up because I'm, I'm awake after, the, after work, so I'll go now. And I'd go along and, and all year round, I'd be in this at two in the morning in this, you know, big fluorescently lit building picking up blueberries, picking up... Sometimes I could get mangoes, which generally are a summer fruit. I'd be getting them in the depths of winter sometimes. No idea where these grew. No idea who grew them. No idea how they got here. But I just thought, oh, mango, yum, I'll take that. Um, you know, and, and that was my relationship to the produce, was this sense that, well, you know, doesn't it grow at 2 a.m. at Woolworths? Is that, does, is that not where it comes from? Well, that's news to me. Not quite news to me, but you know there is this disconnection. So I'm interested to know, if we're talking about connecting to and, and relating to the whole thing a bit differently, what is, it, what is a practice, a memory, something that each of you do to help yourself or that has helped you connect, like bridge that disconnection and remember once again that you are that you are not separated from nature, but part of nature, that, that the whole thing is one and the whole harmony is there. What, what is something, I don't know if anything comes to mind and, and you know, maybe we, we can move on if, if there's no particular practices or, or memories or moments, but I'd be fascinated to know if each of you have something to share about what you have done in terms of a practice to, uh, to help, I guess, realign that, that sense of how you imagine this thing. <laughs> you can go first. <laughs> um, well, for me, the practice is definitely meditation because I, through meditation I have learned to be present and to attend. And so I have noticed after years of meditating that I actually do notice birdsong far more often than I used to. Mm. And <coughs> I've also recognised that I used a beautiful poem, poem from David White in a reflection earlier this week which picks up on something Sue said a while ago about enough. That um, I don't need stuff to make me more, to, to fill the void. Now, there's a lot of consumer behaviour where we buy stuff because it has been sold to us as something that will fix us or make us whole or make us better or make us sexy or whatever it is, whatever it is we think we don't have. And then when we get the thing, its uh, effect evaporates. It was actually in the longing mm. that it had its power over us and when we have it, we don't want it anymore. Um, and I have to say it's through the practice of meditation and learning to see myself as enough and having enough um, and in the moment 
to appreciate what I have and who I am, which is you know, picking up on Sue's thing. I always go back to the thing about you know, love your neighbour as yourself and the problem is that we do because we don't love ourselves. Um, <coughs> learning, learning that I am enough is the biggest is the biggest discovery that's helped me work out how to begin to address all of this. Mm. I, I think there's a there's so many little little practices. Meditation is is one for me too. But lately, I think being aware. I know everyone's had that experience of going out and looking at the stars and feeling so small and insignificant. And I think that's really good for us. <laughs> um, I actually love history too. And history can place yourself also, not only in the, the stars make me feel insignificant in the scope of the universe, history makes me feel my small part in the great spread of the human story as well. And not in a way of saying it's all hopeless and not worth anything. In fact, it has the opposite effect on me. Look at this, I've got this little life and every morning I can wake up and I ha say, I have this life, but it's part of everyone else's life too. And it's part of this life, this stardust that I'm made of as well. It's part of this life in this universe. And I think w that stops you sort of being focused on accumulating stuff, recognising your own mortality, death is actually, you know, uh, I think the further we pu push death away and just had that fear of death lurking in the back of our mind, the more likely we, we are to try to consume, to fill the gaping hole. So being aware and facing our mortality squarely, um, my faith tells me that we are, that we're all held and that love is the greatest power on earth. There's lots of questions I have that I don't have the answer to, but I do believe in this little life that's part of this vast spread of history in this tiny speck on the blue dot that's hurtling through space. I have a moment to live from that powerhouse of love because I am enough and I'm connected to everything else. You were about and just stole a whole bunch of things that I was about to say. <laughs> Should have got in first. <laughs> I'll rethink going for the last next time. You're allowed to say them in your own words. <laughs> Actually, I, I have a little bit of experience. It's a bit of a combination of both and I'm going to add something that's, that's very practical. I mean, I, I absolutely need meditation. I absolutely have to have a, a, a practice that slows me down, um, that makes me present, that... Um, grounds me where I am in such a way that I am noticing that I am not the only thing going on in this place. So like Peter, you know, my meditation has become, it's, you know, contrary to popular opinion, it's not a clearing of things, it's a time of noticing. Is, is, it's what am I noticing? What's going on in this life around me? What is occurring to me? Um, um, you know, but and and I have this combination with the sitting under the stars and feeling incredibly insignificant, but incredibly privileged to be part, such a brief part of this immense beauty. But I'm never quite at home wherever I am until I plant something and I grow something. You know, um, you know, and that's what what brings me back from the actually going back to our tomato story. Mm. You know, um, it's the becoming present. Noticing that there's a whole lot of stuff going on in the world around me, the birds' song, the, the ants on the trees, the dirt in the backyard of my house is incredibly red, and then putting something in the ground and being responsible for its care to make sure it grows up takes me from that place of climate change is insurmountable to actually we all have a huge impact where we are, but nothing's going to happen until we decide to pay attention. Mm. nothing's going to happen and, until we decide to participate in the life where we are, let alone the life of our neighbours. Mm. I think my... Something that came to mind for me as you guys are sharing those stories has been a gift the pandemic has actually given me, you know, and I know we are reluctant with so many suffering and, and, and dead as well, to be painting this pandemic is a good thing and that's not what I'm trying to do here, but, but something that the slower pace did give me 
was this realization that there was a possum living in my backyard mm. that the neighbors sorry, not the neighbors the owners before uh the, the people um you know who before who owned the place had put a possum box in this tree in the backyard and there was this brush tail possum this beautiful australian native wildlife that lived in there and i'd lived in the place for three years i had no idea that there was a live creature living in this box in the backyard no clue at all and my girlfriend pointed it out to me when we had a lot more time at home and suddenly I would start noticing if you're out at dusk, you see this little head pop out of the box and then go foraging in the night and you watch closely and closely and, and you know, I kept doing that with these possums and then about a month ago, there's a little baby on the back and this possum's going with a little baby on the back and, and you know, watching this baby grow up and grow up and grow up and I saw the baby actually last night and it's or an adolescent possum now, probably about ready to, to continue the thing on itself. But there is something so humbling for me about seeing life just happening mm. and realising that this isn't happening because, you know, I or any other human set it into motion. Sure, a possum box was put there to, to help the possum or maybe to get the possum out of a roof more likely. Um, but the, the fact is, this life, like all around us, is just happening and there is something... I don't know, it just made me realise that, that the healthiest thing for me with, you know, not feeling overwhelmed when we look at climate was stopping worrying every day about necessarily changing the intricate details of what I did, but instead working on changing how I mm. saw and realising that if I looked at the practices, whether it's being with possums, meditating, all of these things that helped to change how I saw, that actually the action just followed. It wasn't a oh, damn it, I guess I'm going to have to pay the extra $2, you know, to, to get the biodegradable product or whatever. Now, it, it kind of just flowed out of something. No longer, you know, was I worried about wildlife because I thought, oh, I probably should care more about wildlife. But suddenly I realised wildlife, I loved wildlife yeah. and I wanted to... You've got to a relationship with a possum and you want that yes. possum to flourish. Yes, yeah. exactly. Oh, I do. Mm. Polly, mm. Polly is the name of the possum. Polly. It's been named and I do. You've got to baptise it. <laughs> I want Polly to, to flourish, absolutely. I'll come to a pet blessing ceremony <laughs> at the cathedral feeder. But, but completely, no longer was it this sense of an onus on me of someone standing above pointing their finger at me saying, what are you going to do? The whole earth's burning. Are yep. you going to do your bit? And feeling a bit scared and intimidated. But instead it felt like, uh, oh, I want to go out and do something. I, I need to. Mm. Um, you know, and, and that shift for me was totally about not changing what I did but how I saw. Mm. And so it seems to me that the practices you're all talking about are, are the practices that maybe are the way through this, the way, the way to find the meaning through this by focusing maybe, and not disregarding the action, but not putting the action first. Instead, putting the change, the transformation in how we view it first, the change, the transformation in, in how we view the disconnection or the connection first, and how we relate to the nature that we are part of, rather than worrying about just do the action and the rest will follow. Is that, I mean, I know that, that you can also, that can move you into it, just doing the action can do it as well, but actually changing the perspective is, is the shift here. Is that, is that something you'd all agree with? Yeah. For me, it's, it's greatly comforting that, that actually one of the learnings of COVID is, has, has been that if we get out of the way, nature knows what to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and actually some of the solution just means us being a bit more humble about um, uh, our place in creation mm. and, and not trying to whack another system of control over the top of it. Yeah. Um, one of the problems we have as humans, of course, is that we're all specialists, aren't we? We all, you know, decide that this is going to be our thing for our life. So we, so, so we learn about our area and we learn all the information and facts and when a problem comes our way, we stick a solution on it. <coughs> But the problem is it's a band-aid for this solution over here. It's not solving for the whole pattern, you know, but actually the whole pattern knows what to do mm. and takes a bit of humility on the part of our species to get out of the way of the pattern. Yeah, yeah. And to honour our best selves. We are so beautiful at relationships. Yeah. And we have the capacity to be in relationship with things that aren't our tribe. You know, mo most animals... Uh, their relationships are tribal or species orientated. Uh, humans, you know, humans are the problem, but they all, we all can also be the solution because we are an amazing creature. And one of the amazing things we have is this capacity for relationship. Yeah. Mm. 
And if we just attend to the relationships, you know, one possum. Mm. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So I suppose then when the overwhelming sensation hits, when this is all too big, look at the stars, yeah. meditate, yeah. find the possum in your backyard and, yeah, and well, just watch it for a bit. Well, yeah, grow well, Walt Whitman's poem, The Astronomer, you know, when it all gets too much, go out, look at the stars and then suddenly, ah, yes, I know where I fit. Yeah, yeah, that's lovely. And that's a lovely way to wrap up the conversation. Thank you so much to the people who've joined us here into and before this conversation. Thank you so much, Peter and Sue. Thank you, Deb, for joining us and hosting us at the same time. Thank you very much for coming up for the conversation. We've much enjoyed it. And uh, we will be back with another episode of the On The Way podcast shortly.